Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we're going to be in chapters 8 and 9 today. In the book of Exodus, we read about the way that God delivered his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. They had grown up as a, a nation, a, 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 a strong number of the descendants of Abraham uh, who were bound in slavery to a, 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 a harsh and unjust king, uh, Pharaoh, in Egypt. And God raised up his leader, Moses, to go to Pharaoh and to demand, let my people go, that they may go and worship and serve me. But Pharaoh, as we know the story time and time again, refuses, refuses to repent, refuses to, uh, to release the people. And so, one by one, God sends plagues upon the land of Egypt, plagues of, of cosmic destruction and uh, personal pain and even loss of life. There are hailstorms and locusts and frogs that eat all the plants and livestock that die and the Nile River is turned to blood and the land is darkened and all of these plagues. And after each plague, Pharaoh has an opportunity to, to repent and to uh, and, and to release the people, and time and time again he refuses until the final plague, the tenth and worst of the plagues, the death of every firstborn son throughout the land of Egypt. And finally, indeed, the people of Israel are released. Now, those plagues had three main purposes. Number one, they displayed the power of God. God said over and over that the people of Egypt would see and know that I am the Lord through the powerful display of these plagues. Number two, they demonstrated God's jealous, protective heart for his people. Right? They were showing Pharaoh and all Egypt, I will fight for my people. I will deliver my people. And number three, they provided an opportunity for the wicked to repent. And indeed, Pharaoh had those opportunities and failed to take them in his hardness of heart. Now, the reason I start with those plagues in, in Egypt from the book of Exodus is that I want you to keep them in your mind as we walk through Revelation chapters 8 and 9 today. The trumpet judgments that we see there are intentionally evocative of those ancient plagues. And they carry identical messages to the world today in which these trumpet judgments fall. Number one, God is the sovereign ruler. Number two, God protects his people, and number three, God is waiting for the wicked to repent. These are the messages, those were the messages to Egypt during the plagues, and they are the messages that he sends to an unbelieving world even now in this age through the judgments that we will read about in chapters 8 and 9. We're going to read, we're going to walk through this sort of one section at a time. So rather than reading two full chapters unbroken, we're going to take it one passage at a time. So the first thing we're going to look at is the first five verses of chapter eight of Revelation. And we're going to find there that God's judgments in time are answers to his people's prayers. God's judgments in time are his answers to the prayers of his people. Let me read Revelation eight, one through five. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. 
And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now I want you to notice a few things here. It begins with the opening of the seventh seal. The seventh seal was, uh, was uh, preceded by a long interlude in chapter 7. If you recall, we saw the quick succession of seals 1 through 6. This scroll that was bound in seven seals. We saw scroll by scroll, seal by seal being opened. And we saw all six of those, uh, or the first six of those opened in chapter 6. And then there was an interlude in chapter 7 concerning Christ protecting his church from the coming wrath. Right? We saw there uh, God sealing his people before the final judgment was to fall. And so indeed, at the end of chapter 6, we saw the, the last judgment, the judgment that's yet to come at the end of human history when Christ returns. And then chapter 7 showed us before that judgment fell, God sealed his people. God protected his people from the coming wrath. And then verse 1 of chapter 8 shows us the seventh seal being opened. The trumpets that we'll read about will follow the exact same pattern. Trumpets 1 through 6 will sound in rapid succession. We'll read one after the other of the first six trumpets. And then there is a long interlude in all of chapter 10 and most of chapter 11 concerning the security of the people of God amid the judgments before the last trumpet sounds in chapter 11, verse 15. And so, again, there's these patterns that the book of Revelation is following. If you look at the content of the seventh seal, there's not very much there, which makes sense if the sixth seal was the final judgment and the ushering in of the kingdom of Christ. It makes sense that there's not much left for the seventh seal to do. It, it really uh, only contains a 30 minutes of silence, right? He says that the seventh seal was opened and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And so the seal doesn't have much content of its own. And so therefore it, it sort of functions as a, as a literary device, as sort of a hinge to transition us to the next series of seven. And so the rest of these few verses, opening chapter 8, are introducing or just setting the stage for the, the sounding of these trumpets. So what does it mean that there's silence in heaven? What is the significance of this 30-minute period of silence after the sealing of God's people and now before these, these trumpet judgments are to sound? Well, in Zechariah 2, as an example, God is proclaiming his intentions to visit vengeance upon the nations who had earlier oppressed Israel. And so he has this prophet Zechariah announcing his judgments to come on the pagan nations who had oppressed Israel. And after warning of this judgment that was soon to be on the way, he declares in Zechariah 2.13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So I think that the silence in heaven that we see right here is a precursor to God's righteous judgment upon the wicked. And as we'll see, the trumpets represent judgments from God 
poured out upon sinners in this age. I don't believe that the uh, that the ju- the trumpets we read about are all future events. I think there are some as the, as there's a, an increasing intensity and a progression of these things. There are some of these events that are yet to come and connected with Christ's return. But I think what we're seeing in these trumpets sounding and the events that they bring about is that the judgments of God in time, in this age, upon an unbelieving world, temporal judgments, restrained judgments, not full and final judgment. And as these judgments are about to come, all heaven stands still in reverence and awe before the holy God as he prepares to let loose the bow of his fury upon the wicked. May we so reverence our holy God in consideration of his just and righteous wrath towards sin. The last thing I want you to notice about these introductory verses is this, and it's the main point that I said just a moment ago. The judgments that God pours out upon the world are in direct response to the prayers of his people. I hope you see that connection in the text. In verse 3, an angel brings a censer filled with incense to the altar before God. And so the incense would have, in the Old Testament, in the temple, would have been burning at all times as, a, as an offering to God. And it said that the, the, the aroma of the incense would, would rise to God's nostrils and, and be pleasing to him. And so here we have an angel with all of this incense that he's going to burn. And we're told that the incense is the prayers of the saints. He brings this incense to uh, the altar with the prayers of the saints. And I think that they are one and the same. The prayers of the saints are this incense, an image of this incense rising before God. Remember the cries of the martyred saints in chapter 6, verse 10. John looked and saw the souls of the martyrs, those who had been slain for their testimony, under the altar. And they were crying out to God, O Lord, sovereign and true, how long? until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, right? And so he's carrying the prayers of the saints. In verse 5, the angel fills the censer with fire from the altar where the saints' prayers are burning, right? And he flings it to the earth. So it is the prayers of the saints that have been burning that get gathered into this censer and flung to the earth. And then we're told... That, that is accompanied by rumblings of thunder and lightning, etc., which reminds us of what was going on around the throne of God in Revelation 4, verse 5, when John saw the throne and there was thunder and lightning and smoke around him. So this is God in sovereignty and might sending judgments upon sinners on the earth in response to the prayers of his people, to the cries of his saints. Friends, our prayers are before God's throne. Our voices reach his ears. Our cries for for justice, for relief, for help, for healing, for mercy, for vindication. Our cries move his heart. He is inclined toward us and he is compelled to action on behalf of those he loves by the cries of lament and pleas for mercy that leave our lips and land on his ears. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Let us pray. 
Let us avail ourselves of this incredible privilege that the holy heart of God, the God of the universe, bends toward us. And he is moved to act in our defense and for our good when we pray. How many interventions of God might we miss out on because we have failed to pray? We have failed to cry out to our God. Tom Schreiner says, Every prayer for the coming kingdom will certainly be answered. The prayers for justice voiced by martyrs are not ignored. Our prayers make a difference. They are one of the means God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. We must continue to pray to our wise and sovereign God. Our prayers will be answered at just the right time. Praise God. He hears our prayers. And then chapter 8, verse 6 sets up this next series of, of these trumpet judgments. He says, now the, angel, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Now trumpets serve as, as warnings of a coming attack. The, the watchmen at the edge of a city would scour the land for signs of an approaching enemy. And upon seeing one, he would sound a trumpet in order to rally the troops and to wake up the people uh, to prepare for the enemy. In Ezekiel 33, the Lord says, If the watchman sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. In other words, there's been a warning. You've heard the trumpet sound warning you of judgment to come. And if you don't heed the warning, your blood is on your own head. That is essentially what is going on throughout these trumpets that we're about to read of in the remainder of chapter 8 and 9 and indeed in chapter 11 when we find the, the final trumpet sounding. So this clues us in to what is going on as these trumpets are sounding. God is sending his warnings into the world through restrained temporal judgments on sinners in this age in order that they might turn toward him in repentance before the fuller, final judgment on sinners at the return of Christ. And so this series of seven, before we start reading about the trumpets, this series of seven trumpets spans the same time period that we've seen covered twice already. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 showed us letters to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor that represent God's message to his churches throughout the ages, right? So there are messages for all churches throughout sort of church history until Christ returns. Then in chapter 6 and 7, we saw again the opening of the scroll and the seven seals there that show God's purposes unfolding throughout this age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and it culminated in the final judgment upon the world in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. And so the seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11 are God's partial temporal judgments on sinners throughout the age preceding Christ's return. So let's turn now to the first four of these trumpets. They are, they are shown in, a, in groupings. There's a group of four that clearly belong together. And then there's a, a transition before the final three trumpets, and they clearly uh, belong in a group on their own. Let me read for you verses 6 through 13 of Revelation chapter 8. 
Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. The first four trumpets show us this reality. God's judgments involve physical suffering. God's judgments involve physical suffering. The judgments described in these first four trumpets generally affect man's physical environment. That is the earth itself. Land, sea, rivers and springs, and the skies. Right? Those are the four regions of the creation that are affected by these first four trumpets. It, it, they include physical bodily harm to some we're told that many died from the bitter water created by the third trumpet. That they turned to wormwood, which was a plant uh, native to, to uh, northern Africa and Asia uh, that was poisonous and had a bitter taste. And so many will die, uh, according to this vision, uh, through the drinking of this uh, embittered water. And so we see the earth itself, right, the creation itself being uh, attacked almost, being affected by these trumpet judgments. Now, again, I don't believe that these things are to be taken literally. We've seen Revelation is, is apocalyptic literature. It, it relies heavily upon symbolism to represent spiritual realities and, and things that are true about human life and about God's holiness and judgments. And so I think that these uh, the sun, a third of the sun being darkened and a third of all the grass being burned up and a third of the waters, drinking waters on earth being turned bitter. I think these are symbols of physical sufferings from divine judgments. So in other words, in time, in our age, God will and does send physical pain and difficulties and torments and even death to the ungodly as a warning to others and as judgments upon sin. And of course, we started with the, the Egypt plagues and you can see, I hope, a number of those uh, referenced here. There are echoes of uh, Egypt plagues of hail in Exodus 9, of the Nile River turned to blood in Exodus 7, and of darkness throughout the land in Exodus 10. Right? Those things are all happening in these trumpet judgments. 
And so as these trumpets are blown at any point throughout this age of human history, it represents real physical suffering that comes upon our world and upon particularly those who do not know Jesus and are not protected by the grace of God in Christ that will fall on people in our own day. I want you to also notice that the judgments are partial. They're terrible, but they're restrained. It's not full judgment because over and over again you see this phrase that the judgments affected a third of whatever it is that they struck. Right? A third of the plants were burned up. A third of uh, the waters turned to blood. A third of the, the, the sky was darkened, etc. A third of the day was kept from, from shining. And so they're, they're, they're a third. So it's restrained. It's partial. But I also want you to notice that it's an increase from what we saw in the seals. In chapter 6, when the first four seals were opened and we saw the horsemen of the apocalypse, as it were, coming out, their judgments were said to affect one-fourth of the world, one-fourth of mankind. So we've increased from one-fourth to one-third. So there is at least a literary sort of progression here where we're seeing the increased intensity of the, uh, the judgments coming upon the world. So the judgments of God come in this age. They are partial they are restrained. They are not as full as they could be, as bad as they could be. And indeed, they are only glimpses, foreshadowings of the final judgment that will come upon the unbelieving world at the return of Christ. Listen, we don't need to start interpreting every disaster and every tragedy as a specific judgment of God upon a specific person for a specific sin. I think... Generally, that is out of our understanding. It's beyond the realm of what we can see and know with certainty. But we do need to have a category in our minds for temporal judgments from God upon people on this earth. It would be wrong. It would be unbiblical to say God doesn't harm people for their sin. God doesn't visit sickness or even death upon sinners because of their sin. It would be wrong of us to say that because the Bible, not only here but elsewhere, clearly depicts God does indeed visit judgments upon sinful people in the world. Now, that's not how he relates to his people. That's not anymore how he relates to his children, praise God. But he may and he does bring calamity, sickness, loss, and even death into the lives of some unbelievers in this age as a sign of his holiness and their sinfulness, and as a reminder to others of the worse and more exhaustive judgment that's yet to come. So as we see these judgments unfolding, we, we should not necessarily be looking for the actual uh, literal examples of these things happening. Oh, a, a star fell from the sky and burned up a third of the ocean. I don't think we'll see that literally happening. I think we're seeing symbols of the judgments of God that do fall in time upon an unbelieving world. So God's judgments involve physical suffering. And then verse 13 provides a transition to these final three trumpets. We're only going to see two of them today. The third one doesn't sound until middle of chapter 11, because I told you there's this long interlude. But there's an eagle flying overhead, and he announces, Woe, woe, woe. Not like the woe that you would say to a horse to get it to slow down. This is the, the prophetic curse 
the pronouncement of misery. Woe upon those who dwell on the earth, which we've said before is always in Revelation a, a, a symbol for unbelievers. Those who dwell on the earth are not just human beings who live in the world. Those who dwell on the earth are earth dwellers who do not believe in and worship God. They're sinners, they're idol worshipers, etc. Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the escalating intensity of the judgments that are represented by trumpets 5, 6, and 7. And what we'll see in these next two trumpets is this. God's judgments involve spiritual oppression. We saw in the first four trumpets that his judgments involve physical suffering. Here we'll see that his judgments also involve spiritual oppression. Let me read for you verses 1 through 12 of chapter 9. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. There's a general intensifying of the judgments between uh, one, and, 1 through 4 and 5 through 7, which you can pretty plainly sense by reading about just uh, the trumpet number 5 that we just saw. The judgments in this section are not only more expansive and probably even more global in their effect, but they take the form of spiritual oppression by demonic powers. Spiritual oppression by demonic powers. In verse 1 of chapter 9, it said that he saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. I believe that this star is Satan. There are different understandings of this. Again, Revelation is filled with so many symbols that it's possible to take things in a lot of different ways. I think what we're seeing in this star falling from heaven is Satan himself. A few reasons I think that. Number one, I'm reminded immediately of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where he said to his disciples who had been casting out demons, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And indeed, we have depictions elsewhere in Isaiah and, and the Psalms of, of a, an angel who had fallen 
uh, from heaven. And this all seems to be references to Satan, that is, the, the, the ruler of the demonic spirits, the, these fallen angels. Secondly, the star that he sees falling from heaven is referred to as he. Right? He says, I saw a star fallen from heaven, and he was given a key and opened the shaft of the, the abyss, the bottomless pit. So it's clearly a, a, a being and not just a thing. And then finally, down in verse 11, where it refers to the angel of the bottomless pit. They have his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. That angel of the bottomless pit is, is, uh, is almost certainly Satan. He is explicitly named for us there. And it gives us the Hebrew name, Abaddon, and the Greek name, Apollyon, both of which mean destroyer. The translation of those names is destroyer. So I think what we're seeing here is Satan himself. And again, if we're considering that this spans the sort of whole age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, it's like we've kind of zoomed backward and we've seen Satan fall from heaven and begin his sort of spiritual rampage against God and against his creatures. And so he goes to this abyss, this bottomless pit, and he opens it. And what comes out of the bottomless pit, which is probably hell, is described as a swarm of deranged, mutant, stinging locusts. Not like any ordinary locusts that you've ever seen or dealt with, I imagine. In verses 7 through 10, they're described with all kinds of images and analogies that we would be probably on a fool's errand to try to pinpoint exactly what each one of these things represents. They've got like faces like a person and, and hair like women's and teeth like lions and, and these tails like scorpions. Like what kind of locust are we talking about here? These are not ordinary locusts. They are indeed symbolic representations of demonic beings who oppress people. Not with literal stinging tails, but with spiritual misery. In other words, in this age, between now and when Christ returns, God uses even dark spiritual forces to torment and bring misery to those on the earth who do not know him and worship him and repent of their sins. I think of uh, King Saul in the Old Testament who, it's, we're told in 1 Samuel, that the Lord sent Saul a troubling spirit and he could only be soothed by David's music. Remember when David would come into the court and play his harp or his lyre, Saul would be soothed. And then when the music stopped, he was sort of back in this kind of madman phase and that was said to be a, a troubling spirit sent to him by the Lord. I want you to notice that these locusts don't care about grass and plants, right? They're told, in fact, not to harm the grass. Leave the grass alone. Leave the plants alone. What locust has ever not cared about green grass and plants? That's what locusts eat. But these are not normal locusts. They are sent after the people on the earth. They attack people. Once again, the swarm of locusts representing demonic oppression echoes the plague of locusts in Egypt in Exodus chapter 10. I want you to notice something really important here. These demonic forces, led by the angel of the abyss, right? Abaddon, Napoleon, Satan himself. These demonic forces are under the restraining sovereign hand of God. They do not have autonomy. 
They do not have absolute power. They can only wreak the havoc that God permits them to wreak. The angel of the pit was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Clearly that key was given to him by God. We're told elsewhere that hell was created by God for Satan and his angels. The locusts are told in verse 4 not to harm the grass of the earth. Who's giving them these instructions in the context? I think it makes sense that it's God. God releases, God gives the key to Satan who opens the abyss. And then they are told, I think, by God, do not harm the grass of the earth, but only attack people. But indeed, not all people indiscriminately. What are we told? Only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So we remember back to chapter 7 now. God sealed his people. God protected his people with the name of God and the Lamb on their foreheads. And so these demonic forces only attack and oppress those who do not belong to him, who do not have the mark of, of, of the ownership of God, who have not themselves trusted in Christ and belong to him. And they are given a particular period of time that they are allowed to torment people. It's only five months. I don't want to work too hard to figure out what exactly that five-month period means. It means at least that it's a limited time. It's not indefinite. It's not forever. And for this limited period of time, probably not a literal five months, Satan and his forces are permitted to torment, to bring spiritual misery and suffering to those on the earth who do not belong to God. So I think that these spiritual oppressions may take many forms. They may take the forms of what appear to us as, as mental illnesses. I'm not saying that every mental illness is an act of spiritual oppression, but I think it is a form that Satan's work can take. And, and it can take the form of, of deception, the, the form of beliefs in various uh, conspiracies and, uh, and paranoia about things, terrible things that may be happening. It can take all kinds of forms of just sorrow and misery and self-obsessions. The spiritual misery that these demons can inflict come in a number of forms. And even those forms of spiritual oppression are under the sovereign and restraining hand of God. Think of the book of Job. Satan came to God and said, basically, let me go give Job some trouble. And God allowed it, but he gave him a limit, didn't he? He says, don't harm him, as in don't kill him. Don't do anything that will irreparably do harm to, to his person. And then Satan does all kinds of terrible things in Job's life. And we see time and time again, uh, Job continues to trust God and, uh, and, and is kind of vindicated in his character by that. So God allows Satan to, to work in these different ways. The judgments of God on the world in this age, even the dark oppression by demonic beings in the spiritual realm, are guided and restrained by his almighty hand in order that they might only accomplish his sovereign purposes. Even the prince of demons can only unwittingly advance the designs of God, acting as his instrument of judgment upon sinners. This also gives us something purposeful and redemptive to pray concerning the hardships and brokenness in our world. Right? When we see 
people struggling in these various ways and oppressed in different ways, we can pray, Lord, may the pains and trials of our neighborhood, our communities, our nation be used in your strong hand to carry out your redemptive purposes in the world, to bring sinners to repentance, to drive our own hearts and faith to your throne. It gives us ways that we can pray regarding the brokenness in our world. And then we're told in verse 12, the first woe has passed. So the fifth trumpet was the first of these woes. And now two woes are still to come. Just one more for us today, though. We'll look at the sixth trumpet and thus the second woe in chapter 9, verses 13 through 19. Let me read this for you. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour of the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. So the spiritual oppression that God includes in his judgments upon the world continue here in an increased and expanded and intensified way. The level of calamity and carnage clearly escalates as the cavalry of angel troops summoned here bring violence and death to one third of mankind. This is looking at the whole globe and considering all of humanity. It says one third of mankind are killed by these angel uh, troops. And these seem again to be demonic forces, even though they're spoken of as angels who had been bound at the river Euphrates and who had been prepared for the hour, the day, and the month, and the year. So remember that even the demons are under God's sovereign sway and cannot work where the Lord has not authorized them to do so. So I think even though they're named as angels, I think we should understand them as, as fallen angels, as, as angels who serve Satan. The Euphrates is significant here for a couple of reasons. It was a huge river to the east of Israel, uh, and it served as the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire of the day. And the Parthian uh, Empire to the east continued to trouble Rome uh, and indeed for, uh, prohibited Rome from expanding any further east because those people were just too strong. So the, the Euphrates was the eastern boundary of the, the, the empire of Rome. And more to the point, in Israel's history, uh, Euf the Euphrates was, again, the eastern border beyond which the sort of great military powers of their day that, that harmed them and oppressed them were located, particularly the nations of Assyria and Babylon who were the nations who took captive the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah, respectively. They were beyond the Euphrates. So the Euphrates River was seen as a sort of, this is the place where formidable enemies come from. Right? When somebody comes to oppress the people of Israel, they come from the east. That was 
that was a notion that they would have been well acquainted with. And so the notion of the angels at the, Euphrat- the, at the Euphrates represent powerful enemies from the east who may invade if not held back by God's sovereign hand. And so indeed they have been restrained up to this point in the, the symbol, symbolic vision. They've been prepared, but they've been holding back. They've been waiting, right? They've been holding things at bay. And now they are released. And when they are released, they come to kill a third of mankind. And what we see is a massive army, 200 million mounted troops with lion-headed horses that breathe fire and smoke and sulfur. Again, these are images, strange, grotesque images to depict demonic powers. This is Satan and his troops, if you will, going out into the world to inflict harm and to indeed kill a third of mankind. Notice this, in verse 19, it says, Their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. I wonder if that reminds you of anything. Clearly evokes Satan, the serpent from the Garden of Eden who deceived God's people into rebellion. And here the horses uh, that come on this conquest mission have tails that look like serpents. So in the timeline of these seven trumpets, we seem to be nearing the end of human history. Okay, so there is a a progression and I think a move along a historical timeline uh, approaching the final return of Christ as these plagues have escalated and intensified from cosmic and agricultural dysfunction in the first four trumpets to demonic oppression and outright war violence whereby untold numbers of human beings are killed. And all of this under the sovereign hand of God who brings his judgments into the world. And those judgments include physical suffering and they include spiritual oppression. The final thing we see in this chapter is the response of people. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or the sexual immorality or their thefts. The final thing we see about the judgments of God in these trumpets is that God's restraint leaves room for repentance. God's restraint leaves room for repentance. In Exodus, when God sent the plagues upon the land of Egypt, he communicated three important things. Remember, number one, I am God, there is none like me. Number two, I will preserve and deliver my people. Number three, you have an opportunity to repent. Time and time again, as Moses pled with Pharaoh to release the people, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not relent and release the people. Throughout this age in which we live, God has sent, is sending, will send partial judgments upon sinners, judgments to include physical sufferings and spiritual oppression, in order to communicate three important things. Number one, I am God and there's none like me. Number two, I will preserve and deliver my people. And number three, you have an opportunity for now to repent. These judgments of God in history are fearsome and terrible, but they are also merciful. 
They are intended as a call to proud sinners to humble themselves under his mighty hand, to turn from their idols, to repent of their rebellion against him, and to bow to him in faith. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols. They continued their evil deeds. They continued their false worship of counterfeit gods at least the ones that are depicted in this vision. And their refusal to repent demonstrates the justice of God's judgments, doesn't it? God sent judgments for warning, and they only hardened their hearts against him further. Their hearts are callous toward him, and the fear of God is far from them. And so instead of running to God in repentance for rescue, they harden their their hearts against him and entrench themselves as his enemies. How tragic. You know, most people in our day and culture aren't bowing down to statues uh, and images of deities. But many worship at the altar of sports, the altar of entertainment, the altar of sexual pleasure, the altar of money and success, the altar of security, the altar of family, the altar of personal reputation, the list could go on. The things that people in their fallenness can turn into gods. If you find your heart belongs to one of these fleeting treasures, that these are your gods, you have good reason to expect that God may bring his chastening judgments into your life to wrestle your grip free from the enslaving bonds of idolatry. And those judgments themselves, should they come, should be regarded as mercy. If that seems strange to you, consider this. It wouldn't be the first time that judgment and mercy met in the same place and in the same person. You see, in the person of Jesus Christ, at the cross of Calvary, God's just wrath against our sin was meted out in judgment as the Lamb of God was slain for our sins. And in that same event, because Jesus willingly stood in our place, taking our punishment upon himself, floods of mercy flow to us in Christ. All we must do is bow the knee before God, admit our sin against him, Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and King over our lives and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Anyone who so trusts upon the Lord Jesus has no need to fear judgment from God in this life or the next. 